Would you open your Bibles to Colossians 2 or pull up your screen and find that particular passage? Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century to a gathering of people much like this in the city of Colossae, and thus we call it the letter to Colossians, but we shorten that and sometimes refer to Colossians. So when I ask you to open your Bible and find Colossians, it's a New Testament book, and it's okay to use the, the index at the front. Some of you say, I'm just not familiar with that. That's okay, we've all been there. Um, if I hold up my Bible, you can see how close it is to the end compared to you know, Genesis back here and then all the way to the New Testament. Colossians is, is toward the end. If your Bible has the same page numbering as mine, you'll find this particular portion on page 984. So if that helps orient you a little bit. I'd like to read Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. So please give attention to the word of God as we read it together. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you ever wish that you could just hit the reset button on life? Have you lived long enough to reach a point where it's just so frustrating or maybe there's such a bitter experience that disappoints you or some relationship that is fractured, some messiness, some complication that you've just said, you know what, Lord, if you'll just show me the Control-Alt-Delete button, I'll, I'll hit those three keys together. Please let me start over. That desire to reboot everything is common. There are reasons for that, and we could come up with quite a list of specific reasons for that, but, it, but all of those essentially are rooted in, in this unshakable truth. Life's broken. I mean, the world we live in, just, it's not right. And I don't care whether you're talking culturally or politically or environmentally or socially or economically, it's not what it ought to be. And so when we begin to experience that pain and frustration, we often take matters into our own hands, don't we? And sometimes we try to hit the reset button on family or marriage, or we try to reboot our careers. That's a very frustrating thing, isn't it? I'm 51 years old, and and, you know, I feel like it was only until about my mid-40s that I kind of figured out who I really am. And I think, oh, I, I wish I'd gotten a handle on that earlier. Well, thankfully, it didn't call for a major reboot. It's not why I moved to Utah last, you know, July, midlife crisis kind of thing. But those are real, and some of you who are mid-age get that. You, you assess your life, and you, you think to yourself, what am I doing? 
And so we try to reboot our careers. Or sometimes we even, we have a social awareness of the community and we want to reboot the whole community. And so there are all kinds of social causes that, that are raised up and people commit themselves to it. And we know this world is broken. This life is not what it ought to be. And we desperately wish someone would come along with the wisdom, the resources, and the power to make life whole again. The particular passage before us today in Paul's letter to Colossian followers of Jesus actually speaks of a reboot of a spiritual nature. And I want to work through this passage briefly together this morning and and call your attention to four main particular points and we'll kind of build some truths into each of those points and and my prayer would be that there'd be framework for our thoughts so we could understand this passage of what God really intends for us. And I want you to go back to the text with me and look again at verse 13 and notice that Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And he's referring to a condition of death. Now, for most of us, we think of death as something that's coming, and the fact that all of you are in this room, eyes open, heart beating, lungs drawing in air, exhaling, you know, that unused portion of of oxygen, carbon dioxide, all those good things. I mean, you're alive. You haven't died physically, but you know what? Every one of us was born into this world spiritually dead, and Paul describes a little bit of that death with a couple of words. Notice, first of all, the spiritual nature of that death is related to sin, Dead in trespasses. Now, I suppose that that's not a word that we commonly use in day-to-day conversation. You know what a no trespassing sign is. It's something that a property owner puts up on the fence or a gate or or even a tree on a borderline, boundary line, and, and it tells you don't go beyond this point. And that's helpful for us in understanding that this term, biblically speaking, refers to the actions we take when we go beyond the boundaries of God's law. It's funny, if you ask people, how would you define sin, you'll get a variety of answers. They'll sound fairly common, but it, it really depends on your background. And some people would actually say, I don't really believe in sin. But if you press them, they'll acknowledge that there's evil in the world. But actually go more specifically to define sin, some would simply say, any action that creates negative karma, it's sin. And, and they recognize that. And some people would say, well, it's a violation of an ethical or moral code. And then there might be a debate as to who has the right to establish that ethical or moral code. Some would say it's any behavior that society deems to be unacceptable. And, you know, there are cultural sins. You can't say certain words that the culture has decided those are off limits. They're out of bounds. And to say those words is to trespass the cultural standard. But you know, when God's word uses that term trespasses, it actually has reference to God's law. God defines sin in another New Testament book, 1 John, the first letter that the Apostle John wrote to the early church. Sin is lawlessness. That is, it's just rebellion toward God. He goes on to write in a a, a couple of chapters beyond that, that any wrongdoing, according to God's law, is sin. Any. We have big sins and little sins in our estimation, don't we? We have black lies and white lies. But you know what? God just sees lying. Because his law requires truth-telling. So God defines sin, 
But then someone may ask, well, who has the right really to judge my actions? And there's certain groups that have t- assumed that right. The state of Utah has, has taken the right to themselves to tell you how fast you can drive. As we were coming up uh, the, the road to church this morning, I saw someone who had been pulled over, policemen, lights flashing. They were there. I thought, eh, not a good way to start your Sunday morning. <laughs> but you know what the effect was in my life or my heart? Well, look at my dashboard. <laughs> Technically speaking, I was in violation of the law. Speed limit was 45. I think I was like 47. I didn't get a ticket, but I'm a trespasser. Because the state of Utah has said, thou shalt not exceed the speed limit as it is posted, right? So they're an authority. Has the right to establish law and to enforce it. What about the federal government? Oh, yeah. We even have a Supreme Court. If your case is serious enough or complicated enough, it may go all the way to the Supreme Court where those judges are established as the final voice of legal authority in our land. When all of us were younger, our parents were kind of that final authority, and many of us saw them almost like God because whatever they said is what, that's what was supposed to be, right? But you know, the ultimate judge of our words and deeds would not be a human court of law, whether in a state like Utah or the federal Supreme Court. It would not even be parental authority or uh, a teacher in a school or some local human authority. It is actually God who is revealed to us in the scriptures as the creator of all. And as your creator, he has established his universal laws over you and he holds you accountable to them, whether you acknowledge him or not. And Paul's point is that we are dead because we have actually trespassed. We've gone beyond the boundaries of God's law. And he doesn't get specific at this particular point, but we'll talk a little more about it. But I want you to notice the second thing about this condition of death. It actually includes a spiritual alienation. Look at the next phrase in verse 13. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now that is a term, uncircumcision, that designates someone who is not Jewish in Paul's particular context. But broadening the the use of this terminology just in, in the context of scriptural usage of how the Bible uses it, it actually refers to those who stand outside of God's promises and God's blessing. And as we read uh, in verse 11 just above this, Paul refers to a circumcision made without hands. So it's obvious we're not actually talking about the the physical distinction between Jewish uh, people and Gentile people. He's actually speaking in spiritual terms. And so Paul is referring to the spiritual alienation that comes as a result of sin. And it's not only that sin alienates us from God Almighty, but sin actually alienates us from one another. That's why some of the nearest and dearest relationships you've ever known have been fractured and broken. It's why some of you are still not on speaking terms to your family members or, or your best friend from many years ago because something happened. There was an actual sin that entered the relationship and it created division. And it's painful. And especially at holidays. I mean, these are seasons where families and friends come together. Some of you probably have dinner plans after this that include family or friends, but some of you long to be brought together again to people that you're divided from right now, and it goes back to a sin, a trespass. 
your trust was broken or you broke the trust of somebody else or you offended grandma at that family reunion many years ago and she just stopped speaking to you. And I mean, we kind of smile about some of those things, but we all know the reality of that alienation. And Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually speaking, uncircumcised, that is, you were alienated from God. And if we're honest, sin has also alienated us from others. I wonder if this is a fair and accurate description of you this morning. As you reflect for just a moment on what God is speaking into our hearts, first of all, are you alienated from him? I suspect that, and I was seated in the front row, so I, I don't have the eyes in the back of my head, but I suspect that some of you really couldn't enter in to the powerful truths of, of songs that we just sang because you say, I, I know about that God, but I'm not really in tune with him. It's hard to sing when you're alienated from him. Some of you, even as, as I mentioned, alienated from grandma or family. I mean, you're, you're like reliving some moments and saying, you know what, I hope he closes soon or changes the subject because this is painful. But you know, God carries us to the point where we have to face him with the reality of what we are in order that he can heal us and give us hope. He never wounds us just to wound us and show us he's bigger and stronger and more powerful than we are. He, if, if he wounds us, it is with a view of healing us. Are you alienated from him? You know, the way you respond to that question will make all the difference in where you end up in life. And if you're honest this morning and willing to acknowledge, yes, yes, Lord, I'm alienated from you, then that is an enormously important first step to being in right relationship with him. For people who are willing to acknowledge their sin, that they are dead and alienated, to take responsibility for their choices before God and before others actually opens the door of God's hope. It's a real hope. It's a message of hope. But if you and I continue to deny that we are spiritually dead, th this next part won't really be of help and encouragement to you. It's the difference between knowing about a treatment program like AA if you're addicted to, to some substance and when a person actually admits there's an addiction and then participates in AA. And what a shame it would be for some of you to, to acknowledge you know, with your head, I'm dead and I'm alienated, yet not to enter, not just a program, but to enter a way of life that God offers to you today. Well, that brings us to our second point. And verse 13 gloriously moves us from that description of being dead in trespasses and spiritually alienated to the second truth. You, Paul is saying, God has made alive together. Wait a second, dead people being made alive? That's a miracle, that's the stuff of like scary movies almost, right? Except scary movies that have a good ending. To be raised to life? Yes, this is resurrection language. And he's applying it not simply to Jesus, but rather to ordinary people like you and me, people who've been dead in their sins. But notice that little two-word phrase, with him. God made alive together with him. It's loaded 
with this glorious truth. Every believer, every follower of Jesus is actually united to Jesus. First in his death, as we die with him, spiritually speaking, on the cross, but also gloriously as his resurrection becomes our resurrection. So this is why we use terminology, raised to new life or made alive together with him, or Jake's testimony so beautifully fits into this as you heard him talk about the transformation. There was a new norm. He wasn't the old Jake any longer when, when Jesus moved in and drew Jake to himself and then convicted him of his sin and brought this cleansing and forgiveness. And that moves us to our third point. Look at the text again. Look at the word of God and, and just savor what he is telling us here. So in Jesus, verse 13 tells us, we have been brought to life again, though we were once dead. But look at the end of verse 13 having forgiven us all our trespasses. So now Paul's explaining how God could bring you to life again because the sin issue is real. He can't just like hit his control, alt, delete uh, keyboard and say, you know what, all that sin, all that junk, all those violations of my law, we'll just forget about that. No, no, God doesn't forget anything. But what he does is really astonishing. There's a work of pardon. Having forgiven all our trespasses. God grants a comprehensive forgiveness. Romans 4.25 tells us that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. What does it mean that he was delivered up? Well, we think of the, the story of Christ's Passion Week culminating with the betrayal of Judas and then Jesus was delivered over to the religious leaders who brought all kinds of false accusations against him. Ultimately, he stood before Pilate and Herod, and then I think it was back again before Pilate, and the crowd cried for him to be crucified, and, and, and the Roman leader offered to let Jesus go, and they said, give us Barabbas, who was this wicked and cruel, murdering, uh, political zealot, apparently, stirring up the masses, but they said, no, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus, and he goes to the cross, and the Romans nail him to the cross, and he bleeds out his life, and breathes out his last, and he dies. And humanly speaking, it looks as if we did this as humanity. Romans 4 is telling us that he was delivered up for our trespasses. Who did the delivering? Well, it wasn't Judas, and it wasn't Caiaphas the high priest, and it wasn't Pilate, and it wasn't Herod. It wasn't the Roman centurion who stood watch over that particular event on Calvary. No, it was actually God himself. See, Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice, comparable to the lambs and bulls and such that were offered in the Old Testament sacrificial system. God delivered him up for our trespasses. What a remarkable truth this is. We sometimes think we're okay if we haven't committed the seven deadly sins, right? Well, as long as I'm not, you know, too lustful or too gluttonous or too greedy or slothful or wrathful or envy, you know, or, or pride, I guess I should throw that one in. But, you know, when you think about what's, in, what's packed into that little phrase, all our trespasses. How big is that list? You see, none of our lists of trespasses would be limited to the seven deadly sins, and I mean, we couldn't even limit it to the Ten Commandments. Hundreds? Thousands? But the terminology here is that God has forgiven 
all our trespasses. And I want you to think about that term forgiven for just a moment. It's an idea that's rooted in giving generously. All forgiveness is a favor. Because every sin, every offense, whether it be relational betwe- relationally between us or whether it be even our sins against God, creates a real debt, which Paul is going to talk about more in just a moment. The nature of forgiveness is such, not that we ignore the debt, but that we would choose to release it, and that's exactly what God does out of, out of pure grace. He doesn't release, release your sin debt because he sees this great potential in you and says, oh, you know what, that guy will really do something for me one day, so we'll forgive him. That guy, not so much, not much potential there, just leave him. No, that's, that's not grace-based, is it? That's potential-based or, or works-based. All our trespasses were forgiven. Now let's go a little deeper. Look at verse 14 because he's gonna continue to fill out this concept. What does it mean to be forgiven all? Well, specifically, verse 14 says that God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And that term canceling has a very beautiful image that I, that I wanna try to paint in your mind. That is, the, the word canceling means to blot out or to wipe off or to expunge. And I, I, I'm really torn which direction I should go with this to explain this because I could illustrate it and, and I think most everybody in the room would get it and understand it if I talked about wiping a hard drive clean. But I'm going to go back for the sake of the older generation. You remember this stuff called whiteout? <laughs> and those of you who were in school... Uh, a long time ago, remember that writing a research paper not only included the painstaking process of just creating the content of the paper, but actually putting it onto paper. And there were no electronic devices available then. Well, that's not true. There were electronic typewriters, but I'm talking about there were no screens that you could hit the backspace button or even do the Control-Alt-Delete and just start all over. I mean, you actually had a physical piece of paper in the typewriter carriage, and you had to set the margins either manually or uh, some of the fancier typewriters. You know, you could do that a little bit electronically, but nonetheless, you actually had to depress all those keys just like a keyboard today with your computers. But if that metal arm that came up and struck the inked ribbon that was between the the, the key and your paper, if you hit the wrong key and suddenly where you meant to put an E, it was an F, you cried out to God for mercy. (laughs) And in his mercy, he had given us whiteout. (laughs) And so you would scroll the carriage up You'd look at that piece and you'd get that, you'd dip the white out in that little container. It's a little tiny paintbrush with white paint in it. And you'd try to very carefully just blot out the F where you meant an E. And you hoped you didn't smear any of the white out on, you know, the G that came before it or whatever was after. And then you'd have to blow on it and hope for it to dry. And if you made it too thick, it would take longer to dry. And often in impatience, you'd scroll it back down and try to recenter it on this particular pace place, hit the right key again, and, and, and then it would strike the paper again, and if you'd done it right, it was kind of a clean job, looked better than it did before with the typographical error, but if you struck too early, then you had this big blob of black ink in the white, pa- uh, the white paint on the paper, and just, uh, 
white out. What God has done with the record of your debt, if you've put your faith in him, is to actually white out the whole thing. And not just with a coat of paint where if you held up to the light, you could see the original record of debt. But he's actually erased any record of it. And maybe the hard drive is a better illustration. I don't know about you, but when I think about my own record of debt, it puts me on my knees. The record of debt that Paul refers to would have, would have been like a, a note written by hand which obligates the debtor to pay in full. Nobody likes to be in debt. I mean, even having a mortgage payment on a house, which you know, many people do in our day and age, I mean, you think about how much you really owe to the bank, and if things go the wrong way, they're going to show up on your doorstep and say, keys, please, this is our house. We have four children. Two of them moved out here with us. Two we left back in South Carolina. One of those, praise God, graduated from college a year ago. And to, and I say this in all seriousness, to the praise of God, did it uh, without any debt. Number two is finishing her sophomore year. Tomorrow, this week, we make the final uh, payment on her school bill this year. And so far, we haven't had to take out a loan for her. But now Haley is up, graduates in just a few weeks. College is on the horizon, and the price goes up every year, and again, we're just, we're walking by faith again, saying, okay, Lord, where do you want us to uh, go to school? How do you want us to pay for it? Should we take out a loan? And I know that's common, but did you know that the av- in 2016, the average college graduate graduated with over $37,000 of debt? That's staggering. And some of you say, I, I can tell you about that. You know what is so frustrating to me? I think to myself, how are they going to afford to go out and buy a brand new F-150? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a really nice truck payment right there. But you're not going to get to that for a while. This debt, though, is not simply like the financial debt that you may have. Again, look at the text with me. This is a record of debt that Paul says stood against us. And the English words, I don't know, are are strong enough really to convey all that's in this. That's why some of you, if you're reading from an English translation like the New American Standard or the New International Version, you would read terms like these. The record of debt that was hostile to us or the record of debt that stood against us and condemned us. You see, the translators are trying to convey something that was in that original language that Paul used to write the letter to the church at Colossae. You know, it's one thing to be a debtor, as most of us are in one way or another, but it's another thing to have a record of debt that is actually hostile against you, that condemns you. And furthermore, Paul says there are legal demands out of this hostility and attached to this hostility, there are legal demands, that is, decrees or commands that really come down from God himself, a ruling handed down by God as judge that demands something from you and me as trespassers. You say, well, what's he demanding? 
to fully understand this, and this is why the, the Resurrection Weekend is such a big deal for us. Some of you may have even attended a Good Friday service just two days ago. Many of us from our church were honored and blessed to be with Gospel Grace Church up in the city to participate in their service, but we actually spent time meditating on the cross. And if you want to know what Paul really means, what God really means when he says this record of debt that stands against you, that's hostile towards you, has legal demands, you just look at what Christ suffered and that will explain to you the hostility and the legal demands. The hostility of the law can be seen, first of all, in Christ's personal humiliation. Do you know that Jesus was fully and publicly exposed, I mean disrobed, made naked, laid bare before all the world? Family, friends, adversaries, even disinterested parties who happened by that brutal scene on that particular day would have seen him in his, in his exposed state, humbled. The second thing that strikes you as you think through the account of his suffering and his dying, the hostility of the law can be seen in the physical suffering that he endured. The Roman scourge or whip was an instrument designed to inflict the greatest amount of pain upon the victim, yet not kill him. And so things like shards of glass and bone were woven into the nine leather bands. Small pieces of iron the size of marbles were often braided into those leather strips. And the Roman scourge would not only bloody the victim, but would bruise them deeply. And the Roman soldiers were skilled at laying that cat of nine tails, that scourge, to the bodies of the victims and doing it, bringing them right up to the point of death, but not killing them. And so those cords and spikes inflicted horrific pain on our Lord. That gives you some idea of the hostility of God's law and the record of debt. But that's not where it ended for Jesus, did it? No, it carried him to Calvary's cross where iron spikes were driven through his hands and feet. And crucifixion itself, again, was designed to inflict maximum pain and suffering. Do you know that the victim of crucifixion rarely died from blood loss, but rather they died typically from asphyxiation because as they lost strength, they could no longer pull themselves up and take a breath, and, and so they actually would suffocate to death. And I think to myself, you know, I have many, I, I have many fears in life, but not being able to breathe, whether by drowning or just being closed up in an area where I run out of oxygen, I would say that's way up on the list. And after hanging for hour upon hour, the condemned one could no longer draw a breath and would succumb to death. Now, Jesus actually breathed out his last, which is a reminder to us that he laid down his life of his own will. No man took it from him. But such a brutal scene is a reminder to us of God's wrath and hostility toward lawbreakers. Do you know what else strikes me about the crucifixion account? And this, again, is where the hostility of the law comes into view. 
We can see it in Christ's public condemnation. Now, the difference between Jesus and the rest of us is that he wasn't actually guilty of any sin, not one. He was the innocent one, slain unjustly. But the crimes of one who was sentenced to die as part of the crucifixion ordeal were often placarded above them. That, that's some of the irony in the crucifixion account. What was placarded over Jesus' head on the cross? A sign written in several different languages, but this, this would be his crime. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. You say, what crime is that? Exactly. That actually is a true statement. That's who he was. You see, there was no accusation that they could bring against him, but if you were on that cross being executed for your sins against the Most High God, what would be on that placard? How big would that placard have to be? You and I drive down I-15 and we see enormous billboards, and I was thinking just a couple of days ago, you know what, that billboard, as big as it is, as bright, as, as amazing it is technology-wise, is not big enough, even if you use 12-point font, to capture our sins, our trespasses. And there they would be displayed for all the world to view. You and I, deserving victims, had we gone through an ordeal like this, stripped of everything that would cover our shame, brought to the lowest point of humiliation, brought to the deepest point of suffering, brought to the point of absolute honesty before God, saying everything on my placard is absolutely correct. I cannot deny one of those things. I, I cannot adjust the testimony that's been brought against me, but it is all accurate. Well, that's what Paul has in view when he says the handwriting of ordinances which was against us has been canceled. This record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, it's been canceled through Jesus. Amen. Bob is right. The legal demands had to be met. And the sobering reality, friends, is that either we can try to pay for this on our own, which will actually require death, or we can believe in Jesus Christ, put our faith in his substitutionary work that he did on the cross and say, oh Lord God, please take the payment Jesus made for my sins. That's the greatest substitution that's ever been made. The legal demands were met in Jesus. And Jesus knew that. It's exactly why he endured the humiliation, the physical suffering, and the public condemnation. He did it for dead sinners like us knowing that the only way for us to be brought to life, to have a spiritual resurrection, would be through his life and death. And his resurrection is the proof that he did it. In just a moment, we're gonna sing some beautiful lines of another hymn. 
And the author gave us these words to just contemplate this work of Christ and to celebrate what Jesus has done. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. Through your suffering, we're, we're singing to Jesus, I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One, how? Through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. And then the author writes what all of us just are overwhelmed with. What a love. What a cost. And here's the staggering truth. We stand forgiven at the cross. Now, to me, I think of the substitution that Jesus should die where I deserve to die, that he should be in the place that you and I earned by our sin. I mean, the incongruity of that substitution is highlighted. It's highlighted by what was placarded over his innocent, thorn-crowned brow. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I was thinking just yesterday that as king, what, what was he guilty of? Well, he commanded ceremonial water for washing to become the sweet wine of a wedding celebration in Cana. The tumultuous wind and waves that the disciples thought would certainly kill them as they sailed across Galilee. He, sp- he stood and spoke and said, be still. A hungry crowd of thousands that had followed him because his teaching was so compelling. He says, let's feed this crowd. And the disciples say, how in the world? All we have are five loaves of bread and two small fish. And and miraculously, he blesses the bread and the fish and multiplies it. And everybody eats to their fill. Yeah, these are serious crimes that threaten our culture, aren't they? As king, he healed the sick. He caused the blind to see. He unstopped the ears of the deaf. Deaf. He cleansed the lepers of their filthy disease and he even raised dead people. As king, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. He called sinners to repent of their sin and be made whole. And when they did repent, he said to them, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Oh, that the world were full of crimes such as these. But on that day, he bore our sins. And the Father nailed the record of debt. And Paul says, and as he nailed it, he set it aside. There's never been a life reboot like the cross. The last, and very briefly, I'll just touch on the triumph of Christ that is written of in verse 15. Look at the text for just another moment. And as this work was unfolding, what was our God doing? He was disarming the rulers and authorities. Now, these are spiritual rulers and authorities. This is not Herod or Pilate or Caiaphas or the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem. This would refer to the devil who is referred to in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. We read, Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same thing, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So these rulers and authorities bullied people like us with that record of debt. And you and I both know the devil shows up and accuses you. He, he's, he doesn't have to make up stuff, does he? We've given him plenty Plenty of material to work with. But what happened in this moment when Jesus died, he is disarmed. 
Those accusations aren't going to stand because God has taken them out of the way. And then he goes on to write, by triumphing over them in him. And I won't belabor this point, but again, if you compare English translations, you see the wrestling with, in the text that Paul actually wrote, there's a little pronoun. And we're not sure, actually, if it should have reference to Jesus in him, that is in Jesus, or actually it, the cross. In the end, you you come to the same point because it is Jesus by his death on the cross that is clearly in view. So either way you go, it still brings you to the same point. The triumph is located in the cross. And that is what we celebrate and rejoice in. Are you dead? Are you alienated? Is your relationship with God, your relationship with others broken today? This is the way back. This good news is God's reboot. He's not interested in just making life a little bit better for you. He's interested in forming a new you as he transforms you. What a love. What a cost. We can be forgiven at the cross.